Paul prays. Even as an apostle commissioned by Christ Himself to teach and to rule on Christ's behalf, Paul prays. Even as an apostle, Paul does not merely teach. Even as an apostle, Paul does not merely rule. Paul prays. This very fact should be instructive to us. The fact that Paul prays, regardless of what he prays for, the very fact that Paul prays should illuminate for us the truth that biblical Christianity is a religion predicated upon and perpetually sustained by direct divine involvement in human affairs. Without a God who acts, there would be no Christianity in the first place. Without a God who acts, Christianity would die out. Without a God who acts, Christians would not even be able to make it faithfully to the end. If God's declared purposes were ever to come to pass in history, if, as we've been studying over the last number of weeks, God was ever to save sinners who were dead in trespasses and sins, if, as we've been studying over the last number of weeks, God was ever to bring Jews and Gentiles together into one body and reconcile them both to Himself, if God was ever to have a church which would be His dwelling place, and if, if God was ever to have a church through which His manifold wisdom would be made known, if all of these things were ever to occur, God must act. God could not have waited for us to simply save ourselves, bring ourselves together, bring ourselves to Him. We could never fit ourselves to become His dwelling place. We could never display His manifold wisdom by doing these things for ourselves. Apart from God's action, there would be no gospel. And therefore, there would be no Christians. And therefore, there would be no church. And therefore, there would be no manifestation of God's redemptive wisdom. Christianity is a religion predicated upon, that means based upon, founded upon, God's actions. And Christianity is a religion sustained by, perpetually, always sustained by, God's actions. Christianity presupposes at every step of the way, God's involvement in human affairs. We needed... God the Father's electing love and consequent sending of the Son for those whom, as Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, He chose in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world to save. If God never chose and God never sent, there would be no coming. And there would be no saving. We needed Christ's, the Son's incarnation. We needed Him to act, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. We needed His atonement. Christ Jesus suffering once the righteous for the unrighteous in order that He might bring us to God. We needed Him to be raised up from the dead. 
having been made a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, as we talked about a couple of Sunday evenings ago, in order that he might always live to make intercession for us, in order that he might save to the uttermost all of those who draw near to God through him. We needed the Father and the Son to act. And we need, we needed, past tense, and we need the Holy Spirit to work. Christianity does not work without the Father's involvement. Christianity does not work without the Son's involvement. And Christianity does not work without the Holy Spirit's involvement in the affairs of men. There is no Christianity, to put it another way, without the Father's actions, without the Son's actions, and without the Holy Spirit's actions. And it is this last category of God's actions that is primarily in view in Paul's mind here at the end of Ephesians 3. Paul is praying here, first and foremost, primarily, for the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Ephesian believers. He touches some other things, but as Charles Hodge notes, there is actually only one petition in Paul's prayer here at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. In all, all the verses from 14 to 21 actually include only one petition. Namely, that Paul's readers might be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in the inner being. This is what Paul prays for. This is actually the only petition that Paul makes in his prayer. He prays to the Father that the Father would grant that the Ephesians be strengthened with power through His Spirit in their inner being. That's verse 16. The rest of the passage before us simply elucidates, unpacks, unfolds the effect or the intended goal of the Holy Spirit's strengthening and then offers praise to God for His power. So let's consider these things in their logical sequence. Firstly, just the simple truth that Christians need to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner being. This is the simple big idea of today's message. We need to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner being. We stand in the exact same need as the Ephesians did of the strengthening of our inner being by the Holy Spirit. God has made provision for us to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in many ways. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith is helpful to us here. It says in chapter 5 and paragraph 3, God in His ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at His pleasure. By way of illustration of what this is saying, Ordinarily, the way somebody gets to work is by walking, driving, taking the bus, etc. Now, that doesn't mean that God did not bring them safely to work. 
We Christians, having arrived somewhere, often thank God for safe travels, which shows that we recognize that by whatever means we got where we were going, nevertheless, it was ultimately God who brought us there. As it pertains to spiritual matters, and more specifically to our subject matter today, God ordinarily uses the means of the reading and preaching of Scripture, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, public and private prayer, singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and the fellowship of believers to nurture His people. And so just as we thank God for safe travels, even though we took the bus, so we thank God for growth, even though we read, listen, sing, pray, eat, drink, and fellowship with the church. We need to recognize that God uses those means to strengthen us in our inner being by the Spirit, even as God uses other means to other ends in various ways. And yet the confession says that God in His ordinary providence makes use of, use of means. It goes on to say, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at His pleasure. We need to take away a couple things here at this juncture. One is that we need to avoid, with respect to the ordinary means, two errors. <clears throat> One is scorning the ordinary means as if God did not use them. As if the ordinary means are just this subpar thing that Christians do, but really, really the Holy Spirit's working over here apart from the ordinary means, right? In, in acknowledging that God ordinarily uses means, what we need to do is not scorn the ordinary means that God uses. The, the main way, the primary way, the ordinary way that God's Spirit strengthens Christians in their inner being is through the ordinary means of grace. Through the uh, uh, gathering of the church and all that happens there, through private worship, family worship, all the ordinary things. The scripture, prayer, the sacraments, fellowship of believers, our ministry to one another. Through these means, God's Spirit is working and is strengthening believers in their inner being. So we don't scorn on one hand. But on the other hand, what we cannot do is trust in the means themselves as if the means were effective in themselves. Right? So what we don't want to do is reduce... Christianity to formalism and just assume that basically we can, we can basically strengthen ourselves in our inner being by simply gathering together, reading the scriptures, praying, singing, so on and so forth. What we need to see is that we gather to do these things and these are ordinary means that God uses, but it is God who is using them. And in fact, we need God to use them. Or they're, they're of no profit to us. So what that means is that as we show up on Sundays to worship, we need to understand that it matters. 
to be here. It's actually a means that God has appointed for our growth, for our strength, our being strengthened in our inner being by the Holy Spirit. That it actually is worthwhile and useful to gather here. And that God is actually making use of this very means to strengthen you in your inner being by His Holy Spirit. However, we need to understand that when we gather here, we're actually not just gathering here to meet with one another. But we're gathering here to meet with God. And if God should not meet with us, we can sing with the finest voices and the nicest instruments and make the greatest songs. And we, I can preach till I'm blue in the face and so on and so forth. But if God does not meet with us, if the Holy Spirit does not make these means effective, they will not be effective. You see, so on the one hand, we don't want to go into the error of scorning the means as if the Holy Spirit does not use them. But on the other hand, we don't want to exalt the means themselves as if they, they themselves did something. It's God's Spirit working through these things to help us. So, those are, that's a couple takeaways at this juncture. But here's another uh, thing we need to take away. What we see is that even in, even in our own confession, as I, as I said, I'll read it again. God in His ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at His pleasure. Sometimes God works in our lives in a particularly extraordinary way. Sometimes the strengthening of our inner being by the Holy Spirit happens in ways that seem and feel very ordinary, as I was just talking about, and we don't want to scorn that. On the other hand, sometimes God's Spirit works in our lives in a way that feels very extraordinary. Sometimes we're not conscious of God strengthening us by His Holy Spirit in our inner being. Other times we are conscious of God strengthening us in our spirit, in our inner being by His Spirit. But, so, what we need to understand though, and this is, a, this is the basic point, I'm just trying, this is all by way of explanation of how God does these things. But what we need to understand, and this is Paul's point, what we need to understand is that we need the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our inner being. As Christians, we need the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our inner being. We cannot become Christians in the first place without the work of the Holy Spirit. And we cannot grow in grace without the Holy Spirit. We can't sanctify ourselves. We can't transform ourselves from one degree of glory to another. We need the Holy Spirit. And so in everything I just explained, I'm trying to explain that what this does not mean is chuck out our Bibles, chuck out the ordinary means of grace and wait for some kind of supernatural experience. We're not to just say, okay, well, let's leave, let's leave the foundation and you know, take off and soar into the heavens and leave the Bible behind us, leave normal church attendance behind us and so on and so forth. There's harmony here. What, what the Holy Spirit... Uh, or the way in which the Holy Spirit works, the way in which the Holy Spirit strengthens us in our inner being is often through the ordinary means of grace, which does feel very ordinary. 
And it, the Holy Spirit, He often strengthens us in our inner being in ways that we are not even conscious of subconsciously so that you don't look back and be like I'm, I'm more you don't always look back and be like I'm more strengthened in, in my inner being now than I was last Tuesday sometimes you have a powerful uh, experience and the Holy Spirit works powerfully in your life in a way that does deeply change you from one Tuesday to the next Tuesday but often that's not the case often we look back at the last week and we can't discern any meaningful change in our lives. We can't discern any strengthening in our spirit or in our inner being by the Holy Spirit. And yet, when we look back over five years or ten years or twenty years, the Christian is compelled to say, over these last five years, ten years, twenty years, the Holy Spirit has been strengthening me in my inner being. And so, um, we uh, what Paul is praying for is that God, whether by ordinary means, whether by extraordinary means, that God would, this is verse 16, grant to the Ephesian church that they would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in their inner being. And this is exactly... What we need also. We need God's strengthening of our inner being by His Spirit. And then what Paul does from here is he says, so that. He explains what will be the effect of the Holy Spirit's strengthening in the inner being. What will be the effect of that? He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, and let's just pause there for a second. He's asking God that He would strengthen the Ephesians in their spirits, or in their inner being, by the Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Now this is not referring to conversion, because the Ephesians have already been converted. And this is also not referring to indwelling, because chapter 1 and verse 13 tells us that the Ephesians have already received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, what this must be then is a matter of degree, as opposed to an entirely new experience. They already have exercised faith in Christ, and Christ has already come to dwell in their hearts through faith. So what Paul evidently is talking about here is a matter of degree. And that fits with what Paul goes on to say. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love. So he's using first a horticultural metaphor, a metaphor of plants being rooted. You have been planted, as it were, in the love of Christ. You Christians in Ephesus have been planted in the love of Christ. You are grounded in love, which is an architectural Metaphor, a metaphor of a foundation of a building. You, you are being built upon a foundation. You have already been set upon that foundation. You have already been grounded in love. So what he's saying here is that he's saying that Christ has come to dwell in your hearts already through faith. And you have already been rooted and grounded in love. However, I'm praying that you will be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in your inner being in order that, that you might experience 
a deeper communion with Christ who dwells in you, in your inner being. That Christ may dwell, as it were, more fully in your inner being through faith. That you, who are already rooted and grounded in Christ's love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. So what Paul is doing here is he's talking about degrees. He's talking about growth. He's not praying that they would become Christians or that the Holy Spirit would begin to work in them. He's praying that they would continue to grow as Christians and that the Holy Spirit would continue to work in them. He's praying, as it were, not that Christ would come in the first place into their hearts, as Ephesians 1.13 tells us He already has, but that they would be strengthened in the faith, that their faith would be deepened in such a way that Christ would, as it were, feel more at home, make Himself more comfortable, be better established, more firmly established in their hearts, be there as a, a welcome uh, permanent dweller as opposed to uh, a, a, a side thought or, or a guest or a, a temporary visitor or something like that. That is what Paul is praying for in that section. And then he goes on to say, you've already been rooted and grounded in love. Would the Holy Spirit help you? Would He strengthen you in order that you would comprehend together with all the saints what is the length and breadth and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so obviously this is language of expansion. This is language of growth and development and expansiveness. We know a little bit about something uh, in certain instances and then we come to know much more about something in other instances. Think even of the way our own children come to, know some, come to know our love. As little children, they know something of our love. But as they get older and older, they're able to appreciate more and more what we did for them throughout their childhood years. All the ways that we have cared for them and, and nourished them as they have been growing. In other words, we, when we're three or four or seven or eight or ten or eleven, we have some sense of our parents' love. But as we go into adulthood and perhaps even as we become parents of our own, uh, we realize more and more just the depth of the love that our parents had and have for us. And in a similar way, Paul is saying, you already know something of Christ's love. You've been rooted in it. You've been grounded in it by coming to trust that in this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And looking at the cross, where Jesus, the innocent one, died in the place of guilty ones, in order that they might be justified, that they might be forgiven for their sin and counted as righteous in God's sight. In the Ephesians' perception of that, they've come to know something of God's love. They've been... They've, in putting their trust in Christ Jesus, they have been united to Christ by faith. They have become sons and daughters of God. They've come to know something of God's love. They've been rooted and grounded in love. Christ has come to dwell in their hearts by faith. 
And yet what Paul is praying for is a deeper experience, a deeper knowledge of that love here in this section of Ephesians. And we might think that what Paul is praying for is simply that they might be able to understand it better. And that is partially in view. There is a cognitive element to faith. Faith is not just, oh, I believe, I don't understand anything, but I believe. Faith is a trust in what we know of who God is and what He's promised. It's a a confidence in truth. A, A friend of mine years ago was going to get a tattoo across his back that said believe and he's like isn't that awesome and I was like well believe in what he said just believe and this is the way that some people think of faith right that is just faith I just have faith but faith has an object and we have to know what the object is in order to have faith in it and so before we can ever have faith in Christ Jesus we need to actually know some truth about who Christ Jesus is and what He has done and why we should have faith in Him. And so, so it is with our growth. In order that we we might be strengthened uh, in our inner being, in order that we might have strength to comprehend the love of Christ, there is a cognitive element to be sure. There is something, there is an increase in knowledge that is implicit in what Paul is saying and praying for. Paul is praying that they would know cognitively more information about the love of Christ. That's part of what Paul is praying for. But, listen, this is Charles Hodge, an old, an old uh, conservative Presbyterian theologian in the uh, 19th century. According to the Bible, religion is not a form of feeling to the exclusion of the intellect, nor a form of knowledge to the exclusion of feelings. Christ dwells in the heart in the comprehensive sense of the word. He is the source of spiritual life to the whole soul, of spiritual knowledge as well as of spiritual affections. And I think sometimes we reform folks who love the Bible, we love truth, We love propositions. We love to look at the logical connection between words and phrases in the Scriptures and understand in our heads better and better what God has revealed to us. I think sometimes we are prone to the danger of acting as if it's all about head knowledge. And that that our feelings don't matter or that our affections don't matter or that the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything to our feelings. Or that the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything to our affections. And that when the Holy Spirit works, what He's doing always and only is helping us understand new information. And if somebody's having a feeling of some sort, it must not be the Holy Spirit. But what Paul is saying here, uh, what he is praying for, is that the Ephesian Christians may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints... What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Well, that cannot be cognitive. If, if the love of Christ surpasses knowledge, but Paul is praying that you would know it anyway, 
he's not praying, at least entirely, for more information for the Ephesians, for better, clearer thinking for the Ephesians. At least part of what he is praying for is that they would have an experiential, a felt knowledge of the love of Christ. That there would be a perception in the feelings, a perception in the affections of the love of Christ. That as they grow to understand more and more the love of Christ, at the same time that they would grow to feel more and more the love of Christ. That at the same time that they would grow to experience more and more the love of Christ. And we don't have to be afraid of this kind of language. It's okay. In fact, we have to be afraid of not using this kind of language. Of not thinking of the Christian life in these sorts of terms. There is actually something wrong with a Christianity that is merely cerebral and intellectual. We are to have our whole being affected by Christ. That our thinking would change, but also that our affections would change. That our feelings would actually change. That our appetites would actually change. That our value systems, the value that our hearts as well as our heads assign to things would change. That our priorities would change. And this happens as we are changed, not merely up here, but also in here. We have to be affected by the love of Christ everywhere, through and through, in the totality of our being. All aspects of our being that have been tainted by sin, which include not only our intellect, but also our feelings. We don't, not only do we not always think the right things because of sin, but we don't always feel the right things because of sin. And so if sin has affected those things and Christ has come to redeem us from all the effects of sin then that means that whatever uh, wherever our feelings have been affected by sin our feelings also need to be redeemed by Christ and so what you see is that Paul doesn't drive a wedge here between thinking and feeling the way that many of our modern churches do, right? There are reformed churches that focus so much on thinking to the exclusion of feeling. And then there are churches that focus so much on feeling to the exclusion of thinking. But what Paul does here is he he just says he just says would you be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, which, as we said, needs an object. We need to know something true. We need to think about something in order to have faith in something. And so the intellectual element is there. But would you be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Both. Paul just holds them together and he says, think clearly about Christ and feel rightly about Christ. Bring, would would God work so powerfully in you that not only your thoughts, but also your affections, and not only your affections, but also your thoughts, both together, would you in the totality of your being 
come to deeper appreciate the love of Christ. Now, it's important to note here that the love of Christ is used in this section as a uh, a summary term. That the love of Christ is not used here in a simple way, basically just of the fact that Christ loves us. Just, he's not saying, would you just believe that Christ loves you? Just in a basic way. But the love of Christ here is presented to us. The love of Christ is presented to us as something that has infinite length and infinite breadth and infinite height and infinite depth. The love of Christ as it's presented to us here is not presented to us just as a simple proposition just basically the fact that Christ loves us. He's saying that you actually cannot plumb the depths of Christ's love. And so, what we need to see here is that the love of Christ is being used as a summary term for a whole number of things, all of which are part and parcel of the love of Christ, but... um, which each of which shows forth a different aspect or a different part of the love of Christ. So I'm going to try to unpack this as best as I can. And if I don't do a good job, come to community group on Wednesday night and we'll talk about it further. There's a way of knowing the love of Christ as a noun. And a noun is a person, place, or thing. Right? So, there's a way of just knowing, okay, Christ loves His people. And in that sense, we view love as a noun. But, there's another sense in which, biblically, the term is sometimes almost used, well, not almost, the ver- it is used as a verb. Right? Or in a way that is an action word. Right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So, or the verse I quoted earlier in the service. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. He did something to us. He he verbed us, as it were, and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What this means is that if we come to better comprehend the giving of the Father, or the giving of the Son to the world by the Father, as in John 3.16, we're coming to comprehend the love of God. If we come to better take hold of the concept of propitiation, which is basically that God's wrath fell upon Christ, a substitute, instead of those uh, who rightly deserved it, those whom Christ substituted Himself for. If we better come to understand propitiation, we're coming to apprehend better the love of Christ. What I'm saying is that all of the things 
that constitute the love of, the Christ, uh, of Christ. All of the ways in which the love of Christ is shown to His people. As we come to understand those things better and feel the weight and the gravity of each of those things, what we're actually coming to do is coming to understand the love of Christ better. So, what this passage is not saying is that we would just literally always just be thinking, okay, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me. Let me, let me feel it deeper. Let me believe it more sincerely. Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me. That's not what Paul is praying for. What Paul is praying for is that we would, we would better and better be able to understand the, the depth and the richness and the multifaceted nature of Christ's love, shown in a variety of ways, active in a variety of ways. All the various aspects in which Christ loves us. In that sense, you could say that the love of Christ, the term the love of Christ in this section of Ephesians 3, is synonymous with the, the, the term the gospel. Because what the gospel is, is the way that Christ has loved us. And so, in a sense, what Paul is praying for here then, is that we will plumb the depth and the riches of the gospel. That we would get the gospel better, better, better and better at an intellectual level, and that we would get the gospel better and better at a heart level. That we might understand, as I said, something of propitiation. The wrath of God being turned away from us toward Christ Jesus on the cross as our substitute. When we think on propitiation, we're not necessarily explicitly thinking about the love of God, but in the way that Paul uses the term the love of Christ here in Ephesians 3, as we think about propitiation, we are thinking about the love of Christ. We are coming to take hold of it better and better. And so what Paul is praying for here is that we would grow in our depth of appreciation for the multifaceted and, and variegated and uh, diverse love of Christ in all the length and breadth and height and depth, all the ways that He has shown it, all the ways that His love has been active, all the different facets of that, all the different aspects of that, that we would know these things, that we would take hold of these things better and better, both intellectually and in our affections in our hearts. And Charles Hodge again says, This is the highest and most sanctifying of all knowledge. Those who know the love of Christ for them in this way purify themselves even as He is pure. And what Hodge is alluding to is 1 John chapter 3, which says that all who hope in Christ purify themselves as He is pure. So what... This is the connection here, right? That as we come to take hold more and more of the love of Christ in all its variety and in all its depth and so forth, what Charles Hodge is saying is that this actually has a sanctifying effect on us. That it, it causes us to hope more and more in Christ. And as 1 John 3 tells us, that those who hope in Christ purify themselves as Christ Himself is pure. As we get the Gospel more and more in our head, as we get the Gospel more and more in our heart, we actually grow 
in Christ-likeness. We actually deepen in Christian maturity. And this uh, gets at, this, this begins to transition us toward the next phrase in the passage, which is at the end of verse 19. He wants us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in order that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. What that means is that in order that we would uh, gain all the benefits of the love of Christ that God is holding out to us in Christ. That as we meditate more and more on the love of Christ in all its variety and in all its depth and richness, that we would actually be able to better take hold of the provision and the various provisions that God has made for us through Christ Jesus, His Son. And that we would also be motivated to grow in the Christian life. As 1 John also says, we love because He has first loved us. Now that, deal, that deals with both the idea of regeneration, in other words, that while we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we don't love God, but it also deals with our motivation in that when we perceive something of the love of Christ for us, it motivates us to actually want to love Him back more devotedly. And so as we meditate on the love of Christ, what we see in verse 19 is that it results in us being filled with all the fullness of God. And so there's a transformative element to growing in our knowledge of the love of Christ. And if we, this fits with the broader context too, because if we remember that in Ephesians 3, 1, Paul began a train of thought that he digressed from, from verses 2 to verse 13. And he's resuming that thought in verse 14. So, At the end of chapter 2, Paul is talking about the Ephesians being built up, growing. And then he says, for this reason, and he's continuing that train of thought in verses 14 and following. For this reason, because you are being built up, I'm going to pray that you will be built up. Right? In other words, he's praying to God to do what he has purposed for the Ephesians. And what Paul is doing here is he's showing us the means by which we grow, the means by which we are built together, the means by which the church develops and matures. It's by meditating on, grasping more deeply, both at an intellectual level and at the level of our affections and our feelings, something of the love of Christ. And, and that transforms us. That is the means by which God fills us with all His fullness. And so, we need God's Spirit to do that in us. We need God's Spirit to unfold to us the richness of Christ. We need Him to open up to us all of the blessings and all of the benefits that Christ has won for us, all of the things that are ours with Him being our mediator, the mediator of the new covenant, and which Hebrews 8 says is founded on better promises than the old covenant. We need the Holy Spirit to open up for us what are those promises and for Him to give those things to us and so on and so forth. We need the Holy Spirit's work in this respect. And... So, 
<clears throat> Paul prays, and we also ought to pray to this same end. That, that God's Holy Spirit would work in us to strengthen us in our inner being so that we would be able to better grasp the love of Christ at a heart level and at an intellectual level so that we will continue to develop and grow on to maturity. Paul prayed for that even though he was an apostle. What better minister could you have? What better pastor? What better preacher? What better teacher? What better ruler could you have than Paul, the apostle, or or Peter, another apostle, or one of those guys? What better person could you have leading you and teaching you? You would be foolish if you had the opportunity to swap me out for the Apostle Paul. You would be foolish to reject that deal. Right? But even the Apostle prays. Which means that I also ought to pray. Right? And not only should I pray, I shouldn't be the only one praying for the health of this church. But we also ought to pray. Oh God, would you by your Holy Spirit strengthen us with power in our inner being so that we would so that Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith being rooted and grounded in love that we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and breadth and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge oh God would you do that in order that we might be filled with all the fullness of God We need the work of the Holy Spirit among us to that end. And Paul is very optimistic here as he concludes his prayer. Optimistic and and realistic. This is one of those situations where a, a good outcome is also the realistic outcome. And so it's not sort of a naive or a blind optimism. But knowing that that God has promised to take care of His people, that knowing that Christ is building His church, knowing that it is God's plan and purpose to build up His people. He says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He's going to go on and say, To Him be the glory. But loaded in that is just a statement. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That's just a statement here. Right? God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Which means God is not without ability to strengthen us in our inner being with power by the Holy Spirit. And we know from Scripture, from His declared purposes, that God is not unwilling to strengthen us in our inner being with power through the Holy Spirit. And so as we pray, we can have great, great confidence that God will in fact do that which we are praying for. As we pray to Him in this manner, we can have great confidence. And this is an amazing thing to think about. He says that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Well, who is the power at work within us? It's the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is saying here is that God is able to do more than that we could ask or think by His Holy Spirit. And His Holy Spirit is at work within us. For Christians, this is a tremendously comforting thought. We need 
the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. We need to continually be growing, be strengthened, as it says here, in our inner being, in order that we might be more yielded, more cooperative to, more receptive to, more aware of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But the amazing thing is that we're not, we're not praying uh, for something that God is unable or unwilling to do. In fact, all we're praying is that God would continue to increase that which He has already begun in us and for us by giving us the Holy Spirit. And so that's just a tremendously uh, comforting thought that this prayer, we have great grounds for, for optimism uh, that this prayer will be answered in our lives as we seek God to strengthen us in our inner being by the Holy Spirit in order that we might grasp the richness of the gospel, the richness of the love of Christ more deeply at a head level and at a heart level. We know that God is able and willing to do it and He's already given us the pledge of His Holy Spirit to dwell within us as first Uh, Chapter 1 and verse 13 says, and as we see here, Paul is assuming that the Holy Spirit is already at work in the Ephesians in verse 20, even as he prays that the Holy Spirit would continue to strengthen them in their inner being. That is just a tremendous thought. So to him who is able and willing to do these things, to him be glory in the church as he continues to build us up, as he continues to strengthen us in our inner being by the Holy Spirit, would He be seen to be glorious. And as Christ Jesus is exalted and, and lifted up, would God, uh, who, who sent Him and gave Him for the salvation of sinners, again, be seen to be glorious. Would glory redound to God as He works powerfully in His people by the Holy Spirit, bringing them to a deeper and richer apprehension of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Would He be glorified throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.